The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. Welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribute Magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Len McCluskey. We spoke about his new book, Why You Should Be a Trade Unionist. We talked about his own experience of becoming involved in the labour movement, what the unions could be doing to combat the conservative press. And we also talked about the labour leadership contest and Len's position on freedom of movement. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a $5 supporter, you'll also get access to regular mini episodes on current affairs as well. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Force of Nonviolence by Judith Butler. In a groundbreaking new book, Judith Butler looks at how nonviolence must be connected to a broader political struggle for social equality. Nonviolence is often misunderstood as a passive practice in relation to existing forms of power, but, Butler argues, nonviolence is an ethical position found in the midst of the political field. The Force of Nonviolence is out now. Visit versobooks.com for more information. Len McCluskey is General Secretary of Unite the Union, the largest affiliate and a major donor to the Labour Party. As a younger adult, he spent some years working in the Liverpool docks for the Mersey Docks and Harbour Company, prior to becoming a full-time union official for the Transport and General Workers Union in 1979. McCluskey was elected as the General Secretary of Unite in 2010 and was re-elected to his post in 2013 and 2017. He's been a prominent backer and supporter of Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, and I began the interview by asking him what prompted him to write his new book, Why You Should Be a Trade Unionist. Well, as normal, you know, you talk to people uh, in general conversation. Uh, I suppose how it might have been when we were talking about our schools program, we instigated a schools program a few years ago, which Mm. was to go into every school in the UK uh, to meet 15 and 16 year olds and tell them what a trade union was. And in the course of that kind of discussion, uh, somebody suggested I should write a book about uh, why you should be a trade unionist. And so that's where it stemmed from. Was that in response to what you were hearing back from the program in terms of the, the attitudes that the, the children themselves would bring into uh, to the situation about you know what they felt about unions? Yeah. I mean, it was also obviously the fact that An awful lot, a vast majority of young people don't really know what a trade union is. It should be be part of the school curriculum. We are the largest voluntary body in the UK, and yet trade unions are effectively cut out of of the school programme. 
uh, which therefore means it's not surprising that an awful lot of young people don't understand what trade unions are. But it's also aimed at um, not just young people, it's aimed at uh, really any age who are not in a trade union and also those who are in a trade union and perhaps it was a reminder of why people are in trade unions and why trade unions are so important. Trade unions have always been a force for good and despite the uh, bad press that we get, um, it's important on occasions to reflect on that and to make people who are currently trade unionists feel proud of the the movement that they belong to and the type of uh, changes that that movement has has brought in over um, you know 150 years plus. On that point about the the bad press, you describe in the book itself about how the schools program was uh, the reaction from the press, in particular the the Sun. Could you could you describe what that reaction was? Well, yeah, <laughs> they were uh, they were incandescent and mm. saying that we were trying to brainwash children and yeah. get them to join Unite. Well, we weren't. Uh, we were basically saying, look. 15 and 16 year olds unless they're going on to further education these are the very young people who are going to go out into the world of work uh, an awful lot of them precarious work no doubt being exploited by greedy bosses and we wanted to explain what trade unions were it wasn't about brainwashing it was simply about uh, saying to young people you can come together uh, as a group of people, not as individuals who might feel exposed and exploited and not knowing where to turn. So that's what it was about. But of course, <laughs> our friends in the Sun newspaper <laughs> and others uh, felt it was the beginning of a, a, a revolution, if yeah. only. <laughs> Co communist propaganda in schools. Yeah, yeah absolutely. One, one day. Um, <laughs> So in, in the early part of the book, you talk about what industrial life was like before the existence of the trade unions. So could you say something on, on what working class life was like prior to, to the emergence of, of the unions? Well, I mean, I think um, we've seen it depicted on, <clears throat> on, on our television and in, in films, the terrible, terrible conditions that ordinary working people were um, had to live through and the type of exploitation that was uh, uh, that was meted out by the um, uh, by the bosses the mill owners and the coal pit owners and the deprivation that existed was um, was quite dramatic uh, and of course the incredible wealth that was uh, uh, being created uh, certainly wasn't shared with ordinary working people. And so friendly societies started to develop to for ordinary people, working people to help each other out. And of course, they eventually um, uh, moved on to become fully fledged trade unions. The creation of the TUC back in 1868 of course before that the the chartist movements the the peterloo massacre which you could trace hmm. back to uh, uh people coming out um in order to be uh, say that they wanted their voice to be listened to the first uh, steps in representative democracy and of course the establishment dealt with them in a vicious way and 
our movement is littered with brave men and women who put their lives on the, the line and very often lost those lives uh, fighting for a better uh, type of society and to avoid the deprivation that they were living through. So that's really the roots of trade unionism. And I wanted, uh, without going into great depth and detailed about all of those fantastic struggles. I wanted to kind of paint a picture of where we came from and the enormous advances that have been made by organized labor uh, ever since. Um, right the way up through the political arena, the initial uh, trade unions that were formed, class-based, uh, craft-based in many ways, um, until new unionism of unskilled um, laborers at the turn of the last century. And they relied in the political arena on the, uh, the Liberal Party to mm. represent their views. But that pretty soon became apparent that, uh, you know, the Liberals, just like today, the the up the other side of a, of a Tory coin. Um, and when the chips were down, they were always let down. And so that led to, again, a, a group of individuals saying, look, we need a voice in the political arena. And that was the birth of the Labour Party. So I wanted to explain that brief background uh, and what we've achieved since then. And on that point about liberalism, and thinking about liberalism today, so I mean, the distinction you make in the book is is that whilst liberals may be, uh, you know, genuinely and honestly concerned about deprivation and, and and want to improve people's lives, what they are vehemently hostile to is is working class people taking uh, matters into their own hands and doing something about that. I mean, is that still the, the cleavage you see between socialists and liberals today? And does that cleavage? also, in your view, exist within the Labour Party? Because I think some people would take the view uh, that there are people within the Labour Party who effectively are liberals in their political orientation. That's a good question. But the answer is yes, I do see that. I mean, we've only got to turn our minds back to the election in 2010, just 10 years ago, the, uh, the, the, the Conservatives formed a coalition with the Liberal Democrats and then imposed austerity in the most vicious way on our communities. And it was ordinary working people uh, who suffered uh, that type of austerity. Austerity wasn't needed. It was a political decision. It wasn't an economic decision. And the liberals were more than happy to shake hands with the devil and join the uh, uh, join the government and impose those cuts, deep cuts, which hurt people, which killed people. Um, so, no, the liberals uh, don't change. They may... You know, they may have um, values that uh, they they want to help. They may be good uh, intentions. But when push comes to shove, they will never challenge the establishment, which is what's needed in, uh, in times of, uh, of crisis. And I suppose that goes for the liberal newspapers as well, the the Guardian and mm. the Independent and that they're all they're all very uh, happy to say how disgraceful it is and take up the cause of the poor uh, so long as the poor don't take up the cause for themselves, which starts to um, rattle uh, the cages down here in uh, in London. 
in the early part of the book, you, you talk about your own experience of becoming involved in, in, in unionism. Could, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, I, I left school. Um, I left college. I was very lucky. This is the late uh, 60s, and there was lots of jobs for me to go to. And I ended up... Um, I was supposed to go to teaching college with my uh, with my friend. Um, I'd been accepted at Newham College in Birmingham. Um, he won some money and decided to take a year off. Uh, I think I, I always tell him that he invented the gap year. Um, <laughs> and uh, he said, go on by yourself. And I said, no, no, I'll, I'll wait for you. And uh, so I got a job. I had a few jobs to go to. And I ended up going down to work on the docks. Um, and, you know, the best thing I've ever done, the rest is history, as they say. It was an incredible place to work. Um, a young lad going down there, uh, thought I knew it all, uh, quickly found out that I didn't. Uh, and there were lots of struggles, uh, but it was, um, I learned an awful lot down there. I learned about solidarity. I learned about standing shoulder to shoulder with your work colleagues and standing up against a boss who was being unjust and unfair. And I spent 11 happy years down there um, on the Liverpool docks, which uh, um, when I think about now, I have uh, a little nostalgic tear in my eyes but it were they were great times and i i loved every minute of it on that point about nostalgia do you think there's a danger sometimes that parts of the left can be too nostalgic for that period of time which certainly in you know in the rearview mirror seems in certain respects seems better in terms of uh, there were more jobs there was more job security at the same time the situation for uh, black and brown people and, and women in many respects was was pretty pretty awful and also whether the nostalgia ignores the fact that there were very contingent historical factors which made that situation possible an unprecedented capitalist boom, uh, the existence of the Soviet bloc as, a, as an alternative pole of attraction for the working class, which meant capitalists felt obliged to buy the working class off to some extent, and that there isn't really a going back to that specific situation because those, those, those concrete circumstances just aren't going to be put back together again. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a danger of uh, nostalgia creeping in um, to uh, people like myself, uh, you know, um, harping back to that community spirit and the ideas of helping your fellow man and woman um, were very much part of my life. They were part of my bringing up in the back streets of Liverpool where neighbours looked after each other. Um, now, of course, things change. And so it is important not to allow nostalgia to creep in the way of our current uh, circumstances. I mean, of course, the right wing press and the Tories always talk about the dark days of the 70s. Of course, uh, during that period, lots of things you mentioned about uh, women will equal pay act was... Uh, was introduced in in the seventies, the mm. Health and Health and Safety Act, which has saved literally tens of thousands of lives, uh, was uh, introduced in the seventies. But you're right; uh, the the truth is, circumstances were different then, and 
and we all have to move on. I mean, from my point, the idea of solidarity and community spirit is still um, very, very important. And my experience tells me even today that uh, that spirit exists. You might remember that. Margaret Thatcher once said that there's no such thing as society because mm. she was breeding this, what I regard as an evil creed of um, I'm all right, Jack, uh, selflessness. The only reason we're on this earth is to look after ourselves and nobody else. Um, well, she was wrong then. And of course, history has proved that she was wrong. There is still a strong community spirit. There is still a belief that people should help each other out. Um, and it is that that I think uh, we have to foster. I go to the Durham Miners Gala every year. And what an incredible celebration that is of... Um, uh, of, of community spirit. Thatcher and Sir Keith Joseph may have closed the pits, but they still, but they haven't destroyed the miners. That spirit uh, is is very prevalent. Two hundred thousand people coming together and and celebrating their their history. So yeah, you we 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 can't be governed by the past. You're one hundred percent correct. Uh, you can't go back to those conditions that existed. But we can still seek the good elements of uh, of our lives and try to uh, promote them. And regarding the Thatcherite project and the neoliberal revolution more more broadly, or, or counter revolution rather, is it your view that the logical endpoint of it? is precisely the kind of extreme deprivation and, and incredible exploitation that's associated with the, the early decades of, of industrialization and that absent the, the unions, that it's those kind of conditions that we would be heading for in the long term. I don't see it necessarily as an objective. Um, the reality mm. is, though, of course, that uh, neoliberalism uh, we've experienced it over well the last 40 years and what it has created is um a more uh, unequal society the uh, position that we find ourselves today is that despite the wealth that has been created by working people uh, they don't get the share of the wealth that they deserve or that they once used to. 30 years ago, 65% of our GDP used to go into the back pockets of workers in salaries and wages. So the wealth that was created, 65% of it went uh, to working people. Um, that is now down to 51%, and that drop of 14% is catastrophic in an economic sense to um, a, a growing economy, sustainable growth in the economy. So what neoliberalism, neoliberalism has bought us is an unequal society where the rich get richer and the poor effectively get poorer. Uh, in the fifth richest nation in the world, there are currently 13 million of our citizens living below the poverty line. You know, we're told that there's something like uh, 4 million children going to school uh, hungry every every day. I mm. mean, we've got homelessness in all of our streets. Stepping, And I'm not talking about 
people who are addicted to drugs or alcoholism. I'm talking about working people. I live down here in London and I step over people who actually work. You know, many of them will work through the night uh, uh, being paid an amount of money in their hands, nowhere to uh, nowhere to kind of um, go home to and sleep on the streets. Mm. And this is in the fifth richest nation. Now, that's what Thatcherism and neoliberalism uh, has bought us. So I, its objective is not to turn us all back into, you know, serfs. But the reality of the experience is it's not the kind of world we should be living in. Uh, we should be living in a better Britain. Um, you know, a million people on zero-hour contracts, uh, not knowing uh, how to organise their lives. I was out having a pint with a mate back up in Liverpool, and he, he was on Coke, um, uh, uh, Diet Coke, not... Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he was drinking it, and he was... Um, uh, and, you know, he kept looking at his phone and I said to him, for God's sake, we're supposed to be, I was having a drink and he said, oh, I'm sorry, I, but if I, I, I get a call, um, a text to say there are 40 jobs uh, tomorrow morning in such and such a place. The first 40 there, get it. Mm. And I, 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 I was shocked and, of course, I asked him, so does that mean... You know, you can never plan anything. Forget about planning holidays with his family or going for a night out uh, with his family because he wouldn't work. Now, what kind of Britain is that that mm. we live in when there is huge amounts of money? It's not like, oh, well, everybody's got to tighten their belts because, you know, we're, we're in a difficult situation. No, we're not. We have massive wealth being created. And the problem is that massive wealth is is going to the elites, the corporate elites, the super rich. Uh, and it's only government interventions and government visions and policies that can alter that. And trade unions, of course, have to fight in a difficult climate to make certain that workers are protected and have employment rights as well as having uh, decent wages. But it's tough out there when you've got a government who are effectively wanting to restrict trade unions. Yes, and of course we famously have uh, unusually restrictive union laws. Um, I imagine you've seen this as well. A lot of uh, people looking at the situation in, in France at the moment and saying, oh, why can't we do that here? Um, you know, <laughs> why don't we see that militancy here? And it's like, well, you know, there are very concrete reasons why that's not possible because of our, our union laws. Um, yeah, and, and, and to be honest, it, it, it's this type of thing that gets me uh, angry. You know, I... I often say it, my team say to me sometimes, oh, don't say that again. Everybody's heard you say it. But the truth of the matter is that this is the very nation that when we defeated fascism at the end of the Second World War, we were the ones that gave all of the freedoms that Europe currently enjoys. We gave them that. And therefore, how is it possible that German workers, Italian workers and all the rest of them have got better protection than British workers? How is that possible? It's an absolute outrage. And when I'm campaigning or 
uh, you know, getting on my soapbox about these things uh, and people accuse me of wanting special treatment. No, I don't. I just want I just want a level playing field. I just want British workers to be dealt with in the same way that our sisters and brothers are dealt with in Europe. That's not too much to ask. One form of criticism of, of the unions coming from, from the left rather than the right and not just of the unions, but of the labour movement in the UK more broadly, is that the labour movement in, in the UK has always been a kind of accommodationist project, which seeks to carve out a space for the working class with improved working conditions and a, and a better welfare state, you know, obviously good things that, that we should want and that we should struggle for, but without fundamentally challenging capital's monopolisation of uh, decision-making regarding investment and economic planning, and, and also without challenging the legitimate of ordinary people being forced to sell their labour power in order to survive. What's your opinion of that more left-wing criticism? I think it's um, a failure to understand what trade unions are. Um, Trade unions exist primarily uh, to represent workers in work. Um, It is the workers themselves in a particular workplace who will determine uh, what are their priorities, what do they feel is right and wrong. And uh, very often that will uh, involve dealing with an employer, a company, maybe a decent employer, where you reach an accommodation. So the idea of accommodation uh, and compromise is an everyday occurrence for trade unions because that's that's what we do. Now, those on the left uh, who seek to um, put forward that criticism, I understand it, but they 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 miss the point. They're, this stems from, if you go back to the 80s, we had so-called business unionism. Uh, projected by the likes of Hammond and uh, and and Chapel, uh, mm. you know, right wing unions who were more than happy to um, parrot whatever uh, the government view was on the economy and about workers having to uh, uh, sacrifice things. Um, it also, of course, uh, the trade union movement has a history of right-wing leaders or officials who uh, sell workers out. Um, And again, that is a reality uh, of our history and why I'm a great believer in lay member democracy and, and workers making decisions for themselves. But it is through the political arena that you challenge the economic orthodoxy or the investment strategies. Uh, It is in those particular arenas that trade unions and certainly trade unions like Unite attempt to influence, not just with the Labour Party. We're, of course, the largest affiliate to the Labour Party and therefore we try to influence the the policies that exist uh, in the party to advance uh, workers and to advance the Um, input that ordinary working people have within their workplace. But also, I deal, for 10 years, I've dealt with the Tory government. So I'll be dealing um, with the the Prime Minister and and his um, cabinet on issues where we try to influence. We try to influence uh, for the better. So 
Um, whilst I appreciate the criticism, um, it's born out of frustration and uh, to a degree and born out of a lack of uh, full understanding on uh, what who trade unions are and how we we operate we we operate in the industrial arena um, in the main and we influence uh, in the political arena where we can and of course uh, in my union I'm a great believer in engaging in um, community uh, uh, activities uh, as well um, you know we go back to your question before about where did unions come from and the solidarity and the spirit in the community and I very much believe that trade unions have a role in that which is why I created our community um, mm. membership if you are aged between 16 and 116 and you are not in work you can still become a member of Unite. It costs 55p a week, and it was meant to give a voice uh, in the community, uh, enabling people to come together and to fight against very much so the austerity cuts that were impacting on them. So in, in terms of that division of labour between the unions and the political struggle, I mean, would, would it be your view then that uh, it may be perfectly legitimate to take a more radical position politically, which may I involve advocating for moving beyond capitalism towards you know, a, a genuinely socialist economy uh, rather than a social democratic economy like we had in the 1970s, for instance. But do you feel that's not really the union's role to play? Well, I think the union, again, as I've tried to point out in, in my book, is, um, is to influence um, mm. And that's where the Labour Party comes from. You know, uh, back at the, the beginning of the last century, uh, victories were being achieved by new trade unionism uh, in the industrial arena, only for it then to be taken away from them by the politicians. And that's when people came together and said, well, this is ridiculous. We now need, there's no use us just winning on the in, industrial front. We need now to win in the political arena. And so, um, you know, I sometimes get accused of being too much involved in politics, but the truth is everything you do in life is dictated by politics. All of my um negotiations and I've been representing people now for 50 years um, is all dictated by a political uh, climate or situation. You know, you can be negotiating with an employer who suddenly finds themselves in some difficulty because of a decision taken by uh, the government. Um, they bid for uh, government work through procurement and they don't get it. it instead goes to a company abroad that's political i was engaged in fights for uh, us to um, manufacture our own trains remember in france um, the trains in france uh 99% of them are um, made in France. In Germany, 100% of their trains are made in Germany. Hmm. Here in the UK, it is foreign companies who make our trains. And I was trying to defend workers in uh, Bombardier uh, factories in, in Derby and other areas to 
um, with the government, it was a political decision. So politics is central to uh, the trade union movement. We don't call ourselves the trade union and labor movement for nothing. We are we are linked at the hip. We're joined at the hip. And that will never change, despite the fact that the right wing, you asked me before about individuals within the Labour Party who believe in neoliberalism. And you, you, you're you right. There is that struggle that takes place. You know, Tony Blair and and Gordon Brown, uh, you know, they introduced a lot of good things in the new Labour years, especially in civil society. But they never, ever challenged the power and the wealth of of big business. And as a result, uh, we lost one million manufacturing jobs during those 13 years of labor uh, power. And inequality grew. And so you have to kind of engage in the uh, trade unions. We are the voice of organized labor. And it is our duty and responsibility to engage and influence in the political arena as best we can. Yeah. And, and in terms of influence, so, so, so one of the things you talk about in the book is the media's hostile treatment of the unions and, and uh, the treatment that you yourself receive in, uh, in broadcast interviews, for, for example. And obviously, the December general election has once again demonstrated the uh, enduring power of the, of the British press to, to undermine the left. Given how unbalanced the media landscape is, wh- what do you think unions could be doing to try and level the playing field? Well, it's it's a really it's a question that's been asked um, since it's being Adam asked, was asked elected. A lot yes. at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and by the way, the trade union movement at certain points in our existence have actually uh, talked about creating their own newspaper. In fact. There may have been one at some juncture. I'm trying to wreck my brain. The, the, the truth, news on Sunday, I believe, in yeah, the yeah, absolutely. The now, the truth of the matter is it didn't work. And so nobody's come up with a plan to challenge the, uh, the this incredibly biased uh, media that we have. Um, I mean, there are some good journalists out there and they must be horrified at how their profession has been... Uh, um, has been dragged in, in, into the gutter, really. And and no wonder British journalism and the British media ha- is held in such low esteem by the rest of the world. Um, it, it is incredible. The And it can become debilitating and you can get a little, you know, down about it all. Mm. Um, the truth of the matter is, and the one thing that makes me... Uh, see a light at the end of the tunnel, maybe the light is growing bigger and bigger, is social media. Um, There is no doubt in 2017 when Corbyn defied all the odds and almost took us within touching distance of power that uh, the social media campaign um, cut through uh, a lot of the horrible stuff that Corbyn himself and Labour had been subjected to. You might remember the Daily Mail did, I think it was the day before the election, 16 full pages Mm. just slaughtering uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And social media cut through an awful lot of that. Uh, And so I think that's where trade unions have to look towards. A lot of trade unions are now uh, becoming digitalized. My own union is going through that process, but other unions are ahead of us. 
um, a, a digitalized uh, uh, approach that can um, speak to our members more regularly and more clearly. And as I say, the young people and the usage that they have of is is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And there's no doubt that that is uh, balancing uh, an awful lot of the um, an awful lot of the media bias. And I see, you know, the uh, the circulation of I think most newspapers now the the paper circulation is uh, is dropping dramatically mm-hmm. um so maybe that's the future i i hope it is i mean clearly the the left should be using social media and, and it clearly has its advantages and as you say in, in 2017 it, it, it certainly aided the labor campaign nonetheless operating through social media we're operating through platforms that we don't own we're operating through capitalist institutions you know uh, things like facebook and google uh, are not on our side you know and no. um, and it also looks like the the algorithms that facebook was using in 2017 were more effective for labor pushing its content than it was in 2020 and so do, do you not think now might be the time that the unions ought to think about i mean either founding media institutions of its own or or simply supporting what alternative media there is in the uk because so much of the left's alternative media is really run on a, run on a shoestring compared to to what it's facing yeah i i do um i mean i've been open to any suggestions for us to look at uh balancing um, the arguments and balancing the right-wing press i'm i'm open to suggestions uh, that can be brought forward and, and be looked at i i you know i i would welcome that kind of debate and discussion you you're starting to talk probably about significant amounts of money and it's something that uh, i believe um unions collectively uh, could look at and see if they can produce something that um, that everybody can buy into. Of course, these are difficult times for trade unions. Mm. Uh, trade unions are going through some awkward financial uh, realities and a lot of unions are having to deal with their with their own um, realities of uh, membership losses, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and uh, in that sense, uh, probably this type of project is not a priority. But I certainly can see the need for something of that nature, and we just need a, an innovative uh, a, a approach and and uh, proposal to to get us all thinking. But yeah, I do believe it's uh, incumbent upon the unions to perhaps um, see if we can prioritise that. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.